Hey everyone, welcome back to the Let's Talk podcast with me and David. And this week we're going to be doing one of our favorite films of all time, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It came out in 1977, written and directed by Steven Spielberg, and is my second favorite Steven Spielberg film, only behind E.T. And uh, David, where would you put this on your Steven Spielberg list? Same as you, John. Uh, number two. Number two, but yours is behind Jaws, right? <laughs> Yes, yes. I, I did. I wasn't going to actually say that. I know you. I know. Because I think I think everybody knows by now. Yeah, you're a big Jaws guy. I know that. I mean, I get that. Why that's number one and Close Encounters is number two. But at least we can agree that Close Encounters is the second best of his movies. And uh, came out the same year as Star Wars, which always fascinates me because John Williams did the score to this and Star Wars the same year. Yes. Personally, I think this is a better film than Star Wars. I personally agree. Don't even think it's in the same conversation as Star Wars. Two different, completely different types of movies. But from a, a, a film standpoint, to me, there's no competition. I mean, I know I love Star Wars, but this movie is just, it, there's so many more layers to it. And I mean, I don't blame people if they group them together because obviously this is a sci-fi movie as well. But this is more of also a family drama on top of that, where Star Wars is a straightforward sci-fi action film. You can even argue it's a Western in a way, but this one is definitely something that you get more emotionally invested in these characters, especially in Richard Dreyfuss's character. I think this is his best performance, in my opinion. I, I mean, I'm sure Jaws is number one for you, but for me, this is Richard Dreyfuss's defining character. Just touching on Star Wars, because I don't want to take anything away from Star Wars. I, I understand the impact that Star Wars had on the populace and pop culture and especially in American cinema not picking on any away from it I, I just think especially on director's back Close Encounters is a more mature movie I think it's a more kind of uh, I don't want to say thinking month to be kind of like uh, trying to sound smarter than what I actually am but it, it does make you think a, a lot more for that reason alone I think it's a, it's a, it's a superior movie but in regards to the Dreyfus yes I love Richard Dreyfus's Man of People and Jaws but I think his performance in this how can you measure levels of performance? Yeah, he's outstanding in this movie, and this could possibly be his, the best performance of his career. Now, granted, there's some films I haven't seen of Richard Davis. I haven't seen The Goodbye Girl, which he won the Oscar for, I think, in the same, came out in the same year. I haven't but, seen The uh, Goodbye Girl either, to be honest with you. So I can't comment yeah. either. And he did win the Academy Award for that. Yeah, it was the same year, was it? 1977? I believe so. And the thing is with this movie is he was championing like he wanted this movie like he would go uh, by Steven Spielberg's office all the time. He would tell him like, oh, because they wanted Al Pacino. He's like, you know, Al Pacino's yeah. not funny or Robert De Niro's not funny. He can't do what I can do. Like he wanted this movie because he felt like this this character needed somebody with like a childlike energy to it. And he didn't yeah. think that anyone else could do it. So Richard Dreyfuss was pushing for it. And it's crazy that actually he wouldn't have been Spielberg's first choice after they had a good relationship on uh, Jaws, which is only a couple years before. So it's weird that he wouldn't, that wouldn't be the first choice. Maybe the studio had some sort of involvement. I'm not sure. Yeah, though, I actually watched the special features after rewatching the movie again. Um, it's a documentary um, on there, which was done. For its 20th anniversary, 1987, I think. Apparently, Spielberg had this idea for this movie even before he started making Jaws. And he was working on it while he was making Jaws. And he was talking about it while he was making Jaws. And that's what actually Richard Jefferson's interest um, in playing the part. And apparently, according to Spielberg, Spielberg says that Dreyfus was the perfect person for the movie, but he couldn't see past Matt Hooper. Ah. He, he was like, Richard was there, and he was saying to him, you know, you should pass me, and he was thinking, no, you're not right for it. 
because he was just thinking of him as Matt Hooper. And I believe apparently Dreyfus says as well that he would say things like, you know, Jack Nicholson's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I read years ago that apparently um, Spielberg actually rooted for Jack Nicholson, um, but I haven't heard anything about that since. But he actually went to Steve McQueen, and Steve McQueen was gonna gonna do the part at one stage. I heard this, and that Steve McQueen uh, couldn't cry on cue. I think was the reason why he couldn't do the role, which you needed. Yeah. You needed that for two scenes. You needed the kitchen table mm-hmm. scene, and then obviously the bathtub scene where he's very emotional. And that scene, actually watching that scene, um, it makes me a little uncomfortable every time I watch it because you know he's got the kid there yelling at him, and how just how Terry Gar is treating him. I just feel like she's just not emotionally there, but we'll get to that in a second. But it's just the way Richard Dreyfus plays this role is perfect. I don't think it's a flawless. I have one very big complaint I want to ask you about. And I guess we can go into that right now because the very end of this movie, he decides to get on the mothership and go with them. They chose him. My problem is, is that guy is a father to three kids. And he's leaving his family behind. I, and you're a fa- I'm not a father, so I don't really have any connection to that. So it wouldn't bother me. Yeah. But I know that my father, I come from a divorced family. My father mm-hmm. made it very clear he would not leave his kids. It was in my parents' divorce papers that my father and mother had to live within 15 miles of each other. So mm-hmm. I, he would never leave his family and I, I just, or his kids behind. I don't know how, how does, how do you feel about that? I know you're a father. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. Just speaking about, sorry, Steve McQueen. Apparently, there was a scene at the end before when he sees the mothership where Roy Neary cries. And it turned out that that was the Vasily Middle from the script anyway. So, the one but, scene that would have got Steve McQueen, he didn't even. <laughs> they yeah. pulled it anyway. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. But like you say, there's a scene in the shower, which is probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's so absurd. It's so weird where you see who's in and he's down in the shower. With his in clothes, his clothes yeah. or in the bath, even with the shower on, in his clothes, and he says, Brenda Dagger, I don't know what's happening to me. And I think she, you're saying about how she treats him, it is horrible, but I think this is a woman at the end of her wits. She's had enough of this nonsense, it's been going on, and she doesn't know what's happened to her husband. And I, I think, from their point of view, is that family, there's problems with that family even before those aliens come on the scene. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think there's cracks already there. Maybe uh, Roy Neary would have left her anyway. Maybe this was just a catalyst which pushed him towards uh, leaving his family. But as a father, no way would never dream of leaving a child. Definitely not. But in saying that, I mean, there's people out there that don't bother with their children. So I don't know what he's doing. Well, yeah. And I've read even that Steven Spielberg himself would have done something different with that because that was before he had kids. So yes. it, it was a little bit different. He He's coming from it from a different position, his father. Like yes. you said, that marriage, from the very beginning, it, it it's falling apart. They're at the end. You know, they're trying yes. to repair it. Like, there's the scenes, like, with how Terry Gar even says the first, the first night when this happens and he drags them all out there to go see with him. And she says, I think I'm taking it pretty, pretty well, don't you? Like, you know, usually like, she would overreact to those situations to how he is because he's, you know, he's a child. He's not really a good husband. He's a decent father, I think, but he's not a good husband to her at all. Well, she is trying to understand him, you know, where he's coming from. She's kind of, um, even though she probably doesn't fully believe him. But when they're on that road and they start kissing, um, before Ansel says, I remember when we used to come out and kiss the guests just to look at each other. You know, it's like her reminiscing. It's like her saying, you know, I want that. I want you to do this me, you know, like you used to. Yeah, he doesn't see it because he's too busy looking up at the stars in the sky. 
Yeah. Um, so I think even if the aliens hadn't came on the scene, I mean, that family wasn't in a good place. Like, that's no excuse for them getting on a, a, an alien spacecraft at the end and leaving his kids playing <laughs> because, like yourself or John, talk about it, your own personal life. You know, even if they got divorced, he could have still been a father and he could have still been involved in his, his kids' lives. But yeah. uh, Spielberg says himself, I just finished watching the special features. His final thoughts was that he couldn't make close encounters now like he did back in the late 70s. And um, he says as well that that's the one movie he thinks actually beats him more than any other movie he's ever made because he says that as a father himself, and I get that like that was very much of a place in time in his life but it's also a very personal movie for him because he does come from a broken home a divorced father uh, I saw the Spielberg documentary I don't know if you've ever seen it it's on HBO and he was talking about the kid in the bathtub um, that bathtub scene where the kids like calling him a cryberry crybaby crybaby and he said that that was um, him to his father when he was a kid when he saw his father getting emotional and you didn't understand because it's like the breakdown of seeing your hero. And I mean, we've all been there. Like when their father, when your father finally, like you see your father now as a human, you don't want it. You look at your father as a kid, as your hero. But when you see the cracks and that your father's emotional too, and he's a human being that you don't know how to react to it. And he said that was him seeing his father like that. Spielberg definitely is his whole background, his whole uh, upbringing is in his movies. Like when I was watching this, like for example, from a cinematography point of view, I think that the fingerprints of E.T. and Poltergeist, even though we apparently didn't direct it. Feels um, like a Spielberg movie. <laughs> well, that, that, that's uh, debatable whether or not Poltergeist directed that Maybe that's for another podcast, but um, even parts of Raiders, the fingerprints for them movies are all over this, uh, the cinematography race, how he actually, the shadows, uh, and use the shadows in the lake, uh, and um, the scary parts in it, you know, that will come across very supernatural, it's, it's aliens. From the point of view of the, the, the family, I, I think that his whole upbringing and his whole personal life is, is stamped all over this movie as well. Like you say, the broken home, and then you've got E.T., which is basically about divorce, but of course, then you have Portuguese, which is, is a, a perfect family, you know, which has something happen to them. They have to band together to try and get the, the wee girl back. And, and it even to me as well, goes back to Jaws. You can see some of this in Jaws as well, with the family in Jaws. Um, a strong father figure, which he might have seen his own father at that particular time as being a strong father figure because of what happened between him and his mother. But then you have Close Encounters, where you have a, a weak father figure, um, and then you have VT, where there is no father figure, and then you go back to older Geese with the strong father figure in that movie as well. But talking about the light and the shadows, if you look at the Ben Gardner scene in Jaws, that scene there, because it's a different type of movie and it's a different tone, you couldn't have made Jaws like Close Encounters or E.T. or anything, but that one scene, you can see right there what eventually would become like Close Encounters using the shadows and the light. And then obviously he uses it again in EP and then Portuguese as well. Has a lot of those kind of um, influences. Yeah, and honestly, that's speaking right to me. Like like I told you, E.T. is my favorite Spielberg, but Poltergeist is my either my first or second favorite horror film of all time. And it feels very similar to this. You're right. Like this is where you could see this movie led to E.T. It's very similar in the cinematography. It's very similar even in tone. Like, E.T. is more of a kid movie in a sense a little bit. Like, obviously now. But it's yes. dealing with aliens. There's just now. And friendly aliens at that. Which is something that Spielberg definitely, I think, was the first person to do that. Because there's other movies that kind of have safer aliens. But where the aliens are friendly. Even though they're not kind of 
portrayed like they're going to be friendly. We don't really find out till the very end that they are. But the way that he shoots the movie, it makes it feel like a more lighthearted tone in the sense like with like they, there's certain aspects, but it's still scary. There's still scary stuff yeah. going on in this movie. And, it, you know, it's all kind of just in the way it's shot. But like how you were talking about, like with the divorce and how he likes to put himself in his movies. That's absolutely true in here and in uh, E.T. especially looking at it from, you know, in E.T. when they're at the dinner table and he makes the mom cry when she finds out that his father is with another woman, you know, and he's she's over here taking care of their kids. Yeah, in Mexico. And she just breaks down crying. And the other brother's like, why would you do that? Like that actually that rings very true. Like I told you, uh, my parents were divorced and. You know, I I remember moments like that, but, you know, because my parents separated. I was four years old, so I pretty much only don't really even remember that married. The divorce does have an effect on both parents in different ways. And, you know, the way he shows that on screen and how it affected him for the rest of his life. I always find it strange that in all of Spielberg's movies, how he loves to talk about, like, parents getting divorced and how the effect it had on him. I didn't have a negative effect from my parents being divorced. At least I don't think so. Maybe there's some deep down that I don't know, but... um, I thought it was for the best. From what I understand, they didn't get along well. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen the Fablemans. I think I've seen that documentary which you were talking about. In that documentary, I was actually very surprised how I came into like open he was about um, his personal life and his parents. Um, and there was things there that I didn't even know from reading some of the books that I read on Speedboard or even the documentaries that I actually watched on Speedboard previous to that one. That I think it's the HBO one. Yeah. But he actually thought that his father was cheating on his mother. And he had a bad relationship with his father for many, many years, for like 20 years. And then he eventually found out that it wasn't, that it was actually his mom was having an affair on his dad. Yep. And that's what changed his whole perspective, or whole relationship with his father, supposedly. You know, it wasn't until the late 80s, early 90s, he kind of resolved that. So close encounters in E.T. So uh, apparently E.T. is a, basically a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Day. He had this idea that at the end, when Richard Dreyfus goes on the spaceship at the end, what if one of the aliens stayed behind and lived with a family? <laughs> and that was the nucleus of the ET. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. And basically, yeah, it's the reverse story. And these ships are, um, you know, it looks like one of the smaller ships, actually, in ET, that were one of the smallest ships in this movie. So it's very believable. Obviously, different alien creatures very different design yeah. but you could definitely see that i also think et and in this version the difference is is et is looking at divorce more from the child's perspective most of et is from the yes. child's perspective that's why they shoot it like from the waist down every adult you only see it from uh, the waist down like peter coyote's character keys like you only ever really see those keys flopping around until like the very yeah. end of the movie but like this movie is definitely more from the father's perspective of a divorce and I guess a little bit of Terry Gar's perspective. You get a little understanding of like her character because, yeah, I understand why she loses it on him. Because if my husband was taking all the plants out of the garden and throwing them through the window and oh, Roy! Oh! Oh! taking the chicken wire of our neighbor's fence. Yeah, we're going to my sister's house because you're having a mental breakdown. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that scene when he gets up and starts kind of like ripping the garden up, but it starts off where it's uh, the, is that that's the night after when he's in the shower or uh, in the bath? Yeah, he uh, wakes he, up when he thinks like of a, a moment of clarity now. <laughs> yeah, he's like, that's it. And it's over. Um, he, he actually says, what does he say there? He says something along the lines of, um, everything's going to be okay now. And he starts putting the pictures down of the UFO pictures and crumbling them up. And when he sees, I think it's Davos Tower on the TV. 
Yeah. You know, that's when he decides to start building it in the in the living room. And, and even she's kind of a bit kind of regretful. She's like, oh, I'm sorry about last night. Yeah, he starts throwing all the stuff into the house to build the devil's tower. But there's a bit in that scene that actually makes me cringe because one of the kids puts his hand into the wheelbarrow and, he, and Richard Jeffers fires the, the shovel into the wheelbarrow and he must miss the kid's fingers by about that much. And I always think if he had hit them fingers, they were gone. Yo, yeah. And Richard, don't even move I've always made on him saying, move your hands, kid. <laughs> but he doesn't, he just swings the shovel in anyway. And when she actually gets in the car and says, I'm taking the kids to uh, my sister's, he's like, you're not even dressed. Are you crazy? I know. And she's like, and she literally turns to him and she's like, what? Like, she can't even, like, wrap her head. Like, I'm crazy? Like, you're not even dressed. Like, are you kidding me? Like, the whole neighborhood's out looking at you right now. It's crazy. You're not even dressed. What? Like, exactly. Like, you, he's just so out of touch. But then again, it's crazy because he's right, and it's just nobody else can see that. It's just that we know it as the viewer, but her whole, their whole family doesn't understand. The one kid's all, he's loving it because he's like, oh, we're bringing all the garbage inside? Awesome. <laughs> yeah, and, and I love when they actually go to see the government, the government agents, the military, and uh, she's sitting there above with a big sunglasses and all that. Trying to hate, trying to hate her face, sitting together. Yeah, I know she's just so mad. <laughs> so embarrassed. Yeah, that well, because all she cares about is how she's perceived, and that's why she gets like when he loses his job. I mean, that scene is honestly the way she says that. She's like, "You've been fired." They don't even want to talk to you, and like her reaction actually like hurts me because. I understand, like, she's, like, just thinking about the family and how they're going to be perceived and how they're going to make money, and he just can't get this out of his head. And we know why, because that scene in the car, when that alien ship yeah. go first goes by him, you know, he's waving it by, and then it, the lights go out. Like, if that happened, nothing's going to stop you from trying to explore that. I totally understand that, especially since they basically send this subliminal message to him. So, of course, he can't get it out of his head. So we can relate, you know, looking at it from her perspective, if that was my spouse... I couldn't move past that either. I'd be like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's losing his mind. He's going crazy. And if you say it, they put this subliminal message into his brain that they want him. And, and I believe other people, I mean, it's not just him. There's other people that they want to meet at Devil's Tower. And they're sending messages to him to come to that tower so they can take them away. Um, I like how half his face gets sunburned. Yeah. And he puts it out the car window. It always makes me laugh. So he's trying to figure this out. He doesn't know what it is. You know, this message is not as clear as a phone call or, or, or somebody sending you a photograph and saying, meet me here. It, it, it's in his brain somewhere. He just can't work it out. And that's what he's trying to do. And he's seeing this shape everywhere. He sees it on the shaving home. He sees it on the, the potatoes. But he doesn't know what it is no. until he sees it on the TV. And Which then he starts, for some reason, building it in the living room. Yeah, I have no idea why he did it in his living room. He could have easily built that outside. But I love that, actually. Yeah, because, but, yeah, like you said, and we even know that uh, What's-Her-Name's character, the girl who loses her son, um, she has the pictures on her wall that she was drawing it. He was sculpting. I love it, because yes. later in the movie, he's like, well, this is why you should sculpt, because that's how he's able to find that little <laughs> passageway. <laughs> he's like, once you go up to the top, there's a 300-feet drop on the other side. However, there's a path that will bring us around. Hank, she says, 
I've never seen that man in eyeballs. Yeah. His next hand, try sculpturing. Yeah, exactly. Because he's like, I have a full 3D view of this. I know exactly what this looks like. I know exactly where everything is. Yeah. And I love, do you? I love, and this is, this is a, this is a, a, a movie for me, John. This is a movie that I want him to make. See the guy that actually tags on all of them. Oh, Larry? And up Larry yeah, yeah. And he ends up getting knocked out with the gas. Yeah. I want to see his story. I want to know what happened to him. Well, yeah, like, exactly. Because, like, they're really the only last. Richard Dreyfus is just the one that made it because they all line up. The the army basically picked their guys that they thought were going to go up, but the uh, the aliens didn't want them. Uh, Dreyfus was the only one that actually made it. If everyone else had made it, I guess they would have got the same offer to come with them. But, yeah. you know, he was the smartest one in the sense that he made the 3D thing and he was able to get around the government because the government obviously doesn't want any civilians around for this. But only person who yeah. does is um, Francis Truffaut's, uh, Truffaut, right? Is that how you pronounce his name? Very Truffaut. Truffaut, a very famous French director, the leader of the French New Wave, director of the 400 Blows. This is actually the only movie he ever appeared in that he that wasn't his movie. He just only came on to be an actor, right. which is always fascinating to me that he was able to work with Spielberg on this. And he's perfect. He's great in this. But at the very end, when Richard Dreyfuss is getting on the ship, you know, he he's jealous. He wishes that was him. Like, they invited you. And it's kind of like, um, you just saying that, it's like Peter Coyote in um, E.T., when he says the Elliot, you know, they chose, he chose you. Yeah. I wanted this. Exactly. That's exactly he what... Chose you. And I love that, actually, because it plays with our, like, expectations of, like, the government. Like, this guy, you know, he really cares about the actual communication with the aliens. And it's the same thing with uh, Peter Coyote. We think Peter Coyote is the villain. We always see him with the stuff on. But then we find out, like, they're good. They're well-intended. It's just this is how they do it. This is protocol, unfortunately. And yeah. it's the same thing in this movie with that guy and his character. Like, from the very beginning, we never really know what he's doing. He's working on this whole thing himself, putting it all together from the very beginning, which I love the opening scenes of this movie. I don't know how you feel about it. That training mission from the Naval Air Station at Fort Lauderdale. They were doing target runs on an old hulk. The opening scene in the desert where they find the airplanes from World War II. Yeah, which is... Mother Mother right there. That's a true story. Yeah, it's a true story. Yeah, you know that, right? Those planes that, that disappeared in, uh, during World War II during a test flight from Fort Lauderdale, I believe. That really happened. They never found okay, those. Okay, I didn't realize that. I saw it on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. That's how I put it together. Right? So I looked up, I looked it up, and yeah, it really happened. They really like went on a training mission, and they think it got lost in the Bermuda Triangle, and they never found those planes. So having them... So that's the planes that they find at the start of Close Encounters. I've heard stories about Planes go missing Bermuda Triangle, but I didn't realize that's what the reference was to the start of Close Encounters. Yeah, those are supposed to be those pilots. Yeah. So at the very end, when they come off the ship, those are supposed to be those yes. pilots that disappeared that no one ever found in real life. We never found yeah. those planes crashed or anything. They're just gone. So they were saying like, oh, okay, so that's why they never aged or anything like that. And I, that's a, a very kind of uh, fascinating aspect of this movie as well. When, when the doors open at the end and the people start coming out, and you see them, just the silhouettes, and you can tell from the silhouettes that these are people the last 100 years yeah. that have been abducted. Because you can see the dress, the dresses that some of the women are wearing and some of the clothes that the men are wearing. Some of them obviously are pilots that, that were on those planes at the start of the movie. But it's the same with the ship they found in the desert. I think that's a real ship as well. 
yeah, it, it's all real stuff that like disappeared, and they're trying to say, um, the well, you know, Steven Spielberg and the team putting their own twist on the writing of it, like, yes. oh, what if aliens took all that? That's why we never found them. So it's it's fascinating. I also I love that shot of the ship in the desert, like no water around this big ship in the middle of the. I love yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, how did it get burning? Yeah, how did, what happened? And it's awesome. I love that stuff. I love the, all the stuff them investigating while they're trying to figure it out, while Richard Dreyfus is trying to figure it out, having these like two stories, and then eventually they all come together at the end. Come together, yeah. and, and that's my one of my favorite season movies as well is when they bring Richard Dreyfus in, Francois Truffaut, and um, his interpreter. Uh, they bring Richard Dreyfus in. Brian Balaban, they, I think his name is. What's his name? Sorry. Uh, the guy's name is Bob Balaban. That's his interpreter. Yeah, but that's that's one of my favorite scenes. Probably my favorite scene in the whole movie is when they're in their asking questions, and Dreyfus is just unbelievable oh. when he like, stands up and goes, "You know, who are you people? I want to speak to who's in a charge, you know, and all this." I I love that scene. Oh, I love it's that so scene too. Convincing. <laughs> who are you people i just love it. he's getting madder and madder like because he's starting to figure it out that they know what's going on and they're not telling him <laughs> yeah but on the scene before he kind of just goes he's like i don't know who you people are and then they give him the photographs or something asking questions about are you seeing this mountain or something or whatever and he just kind of goes who are you people mm-hmm. like that as if you know who, why i'm here type of thing you know but then when he starts to lose it he's, he says it again who are you people yeah, because they're fucking with him now. He knows exactly, like, they they know what's going on. They're just giving him little bits of information. They're not telling him the whole story. I don't even know why, at that point, they don't let him go to that. Like, you know, just bring him. Like, what's the big deal? He seems trustworthy enough. Um, obviously, you know he has some sort of connection to what's going on. He could be helpful. So I'm very confused why they try and, you know, get him out of there with the rest of them, with Larry and, you know. Yeah, maybe just typical government kind of politics. Kind of like, you know, we can't have any outsiders yeah, uh, yeah, you know they want to control the situation. You can't have anybody they can't trust. I know you're saying he's trustworthy, but maybe they don't know that. That's um, true. I guess they don't realize to this point yet that the aliens are friendly either, so they have no idea. Yeah, and like Truffaut, I think see does he, he see the three of them going up the mountain and doesn't say anything. Yeah, he, he looks. Tell them he doesn't go. Yeah, he knows. He's the one that actually trusts them and everything and understands that these people were invited here. There's a reason why that they're yeah. all getting this message sent to them. Like They're the only people and they, they felt compelled to come here. There has to be a reason. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's when he tries to kind of communicate that to the, the military and they, they're just having none of it. No, they don't want to hear it because they, you know, they're you got bureaucratic bullshit going on. Like they only care about yeah. what, what's going on, and I'm sure they're only looking at this whole thing from a financial standpoint. And as you said earlier, which is what I wanted to touch on as well, is that you're right. This is probably the first movie where, alien, where aliens come down and make contact, and they just want to be friends, make friends with people, rather than want to come down and exterminate people or kill people. Um, and I think that is as well, which is remarkable about this movie. I think it was the first kind of like alien movie that said, you know. We can all we can all be friends. We can all get along. Yeah, it seems like a, a bit more optimistic. Yeah, because I mean, if aliens are coming here, I don't think they're just going to come and destroy us. I would think, think, yeah, they want to maybe come here and try and have an understanding of us while we try and have an understanding of them. Hey, we know now that there's not there's more of us out there. We can all exist and work together. Let's help each other out. Unless the see us as a threat, then we'll have to be all exterminated. Well, if they exactly like if you know they we start shooting at them, they're going to get defensive. And from what I can tell. They can wipe us out pretty easily, seeing as how they have much better technology. That mothership is 
ridiculously huge. Yeah, that's what I love too. When the first wee small legs came in, and then they kind of uh, communicate a wee bit with them, and they go away, and they all congratulate each other, and you think that's it, that's the show over. You know, they've made contact, but it's almost like they were scout spaceships just checking out to see if it was safe for the big one to come down. And then once it pretty much said yes, it was safe, the big spaceship comes down. And then you've got that amazing kind of like back and forward between the Cruise Encounters tune uh, with the spaceship. Yeah, they did a phenomenal job with that, by the way, the way that they built, because they're building up to that, to that, the whole movie, with, we hear the, like, that greeting, the whole movie, in, like, in different tones. And then once they, you know, like, like you said, like, the three ships that we'd seen throughout the movie, once they disappear, and now they're communicating full-fledged with this beautiful music score scene going on. I love that scene, how they're communicating with the lights and all the music and everything. It's amazing. It is amazing, and that's one thing I absolutely love about this movie again, um, is the score. It's just one of those scores. Once I hear it, it just kind of gives me goosebumps, you know what I mean? It's just an amazing, amazing score. And I don't think, talk about John Williams before, um, and I don't think that he gets enough credit for his score for Pro Computers. People always remember, like, Jaws and Star Wars, you know, and Superman and Raiders of the Lost Ark. But, yeah, and when they talk about those encounters, all they do is talk about the motif, which, you know, speaks to the aliens. But that whole score is absolutely amazing. I 100% agree, especially during this whole scene, like, when the, when the aliens come off the ship and the orchestra is, like, building up. It's done so well. It's it is one of his best scores. It's very very underrated. It's just even this year, like we said earlier, like he did the Star Wars score this same year. So it's, Star Wars, of course, yeah. overshadowed this film. Um, it I think they said the week this came out in theaters was the same time Star Wars overtook Jaws as the highest grossing film of all time. So it was going to get overshadowed anyway. Uh, yes, I heard that. And uh, when you think about it, I'm near certain could be wrong. He was nominated for an Oscar for Star Wars, Romans, Star Wars, and Close Encounters. If that's true, that's awesome. That's I, and and he, near certain. He deserves that. Nothing going up against yourself, and he won it for Star Wars. He definitely won for Star Wars because that year, 1977. This I know off the top of my head mm-hmm. is that Annie Hall won Best Picture. Star Wars was nominated for Best Picture. Close Encounters didn't even get a nomination. That's ridiculous. Like. It's mind-blowing. Um, have you ever seen Annie Hall? I haven't seen Annie Hall, no. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, you know about, uh, what's his name? Uh, who's the director of that? Woody Allen? It's Woody Allen, yeah, and he stars in it. So, you know, Woody Allen, he's kind of persona non grata now. But the movie itself, it's all right. I don't think it's a special movie. I don't think it's a movie that has stood the test of time like Star Wars or Close Encounters had. I don't personally yeah. think it needed to win Best Picture. Diane Keaton's good in it as well, but eh, nothing like too, too special in there, in my opinion. Oh, well. <laughs> la-di-da, la-di-da, la-di-da. I think it's crazy that Star Wars gets a Best Picture nomination and Bruce Encounters doesn't. I feel like it got this one got the Best Picture nomination just based on cultural impact at the time. You gotta remember, Star Wars took the world by storm in 1977. Yeah. That was, nothing was like Star Wars. The changed film forever. Not necessarily in the best way, but it definitely changed film forever. I think this is actually where the start of the 1980s comes in, is with Star Wars. Yeah, well, I mean, we talked before about Jaws creating summer blockbuster. 
I think there was a couple of building blocks after that, and Star Wars took up their new level because of the merchandise and stuff like that. Plus, it was it was kind of more accessible for families to go and see Star Wars, even younger children as well. So I mean, that was very um, impactful and influential for very young children. Whereas very young children watching this movie, I think they might um, lose their interest because it's more of a drama more than anything you know there's not very much action in the movie but as you were saying about the scores there like i think the best part of winning scores at the very end when the credits are playing funnily enough is when you see that spaceship that up off in the sky you, you see it just continue to go and go and go and his music just keeps building and building and building i think that for me that's it's really weird because the film kind of builds up to this big reveal of the aliens and it's almost like williams soundtrack builds to that as well yeah i listened to the score the other day actually when i was at work and i find it it does just build and build and build and build until the very end of the actual album which is great i loved it it's definitely like the score itself works so well for the film because the whole film just like the score is just building yeah we get that first act where we you know we've have one of the best scenes, obviously, with the truck and everything like that. And he's chasing down the ships and the ships take off. But then mm-hmm. the rest of the movie up until the third act, it becomes a drama, it becomes a family drama in the second act, pretty much. Yes. And, and then it goes back to, like, finding the aliens. The only real connection we have to what the aliens are doing is everything with Francis Truffaut that's going on at that time. And other yeah. than that, it's just we're seeing Richard Dreyfus falling apart in front of his family for the second act. Losing his mind. And uh, just on the score, did you notice the Jaws Easter egg? In the score, I I didn't pick up on it. Was it in? Where was it? So when the mother ship comes down and they start playing the tune in the ship, and the ship starts playing it back, just right before the doors open, the uh, mother ship starts playing the da 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 da. I'm gonna have to go back and now double check that. I I guess I never. And then it just slowly it slowly fades. You hear them playing. Everybody's kind of like pros watching. Now, I don't think they're thinking it's Jaws, but they're wondering what's happening because it stopped kind of communicating back. Yeah. And then the doors just open. That's funny. I, I know now I know exactly. I just never thought of Jaws with that for some reason, but I guess it is kind of building up the tension. And you're right. And like Jaws, like, what is this going to be? Whatever, what are we going to have to see? It, it's the same notes, apparently. It's, it's DNC or something, or is it C and E? You can't remember. But it's the same notes, only it's played like differently. It's not played on a cow, played on something else. Oh, that's awesome. And of course, that's a good Easter egg. And there's another little Easter egg when the mothership, I never noticed it, but apparently uh, when the mothership is coming in, you could see like R2-D2 at the bottom of it somewhere. Which yeah, is, that's right. Yeah, they've got R2-D2. Yeah, which upset. is... He's acting upside down. Yeah. He's glued to the mothership. Which, yeah, I have noticed it. I noticed it one thing. Which is funny um, because it comes out the same year as, uh, as Star Wars, so... You know him and George Lucas are buddies. It makes you wonder if George Lucas, if uh, Steven Spielberg had faith in uh, Star Wars or what, or he was taking a knock at him. I don't know what his thinking process, but I thought that's funny. No, but do you know the story about Spielberg and Lucas when Star Wars was being released? What story? Do you read the story? No, I mean maybe. So I'm... this was basically this was basically when they were in Hawaii and they were brainstorming Indiana Jones. This I know, like when they're laying in the beach chairs talking about it. Yeah. Well, they were waiting on Star Wars being released. And the reason they were in Hawaii was because George Lucas thought that Star Wars was going to be a failure and he needed to get away for a while and Spielberg ran with him. I heard this and story. He was, yeah, and he was worried about um, Star Wars, you know, thought it was going to flop. And Spielberg was only one of his friends that had faith in it. 
Spielberg, I think you all have seen it. It was like Brand De Palma and Martin Scorsese. And as a matter of fact, I think it was Brand De Palma that came up with the, the screw, the screw at the start of Star Wars. Yes, he did. He was the one that gave him that idea, wasn't he? Yeah. Because he said, people will know what's going on. Give them like a, sorry, a crawl, not a screw, a crawl at the start. Because you need to explain what's happening. Spielberg was the only one that had any faith in it. And when they were in a way, uh, George Lucas says, I think Close Encounters is going to blow people into the water. Is it's gonna be amazing. it's gonna be the biggest film of the year and Spielberg says, Well, I actually think Star Wars is. Mm. So what the done was was that Spielberg says, I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, If you think that, you give me your points on Star Wars and you can have my points on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And George Lucas agreed. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, I guess Spiel that's why you don't ever go against Spielberg. Spielberg is a very, very underrated producer. I don't think people realize yeah. that. Like he, despite being an amazing director, he has an eye for talent. Just think about all the other movies in the eighties that he put out that just have his name on it as a producer, like the Goonies and, you know, back yeah. to the future. Like the guy, besides just being a great filmmaker, he knows filmmakers and he knows their talent yeah. and what they're good at. So that doesn't and surprise Gremlins me. as well. Oh yeah. And he did. Yeah. He did Gremlins. They actually, the same set for back to the future and Gremlins is in there. Just covered it's in right snow. Universal Studios. Yep, just covered in snow this time. But people don't realize, look for the clock tower. <laughs> yep, and he actually came up with the story of the Goonies as well. It's his story. That's his story? Yeah, he came up with the idea. He huh. didn't write the screenplay. It was the guy that wrote Gremlins with the screenplay, Chris Columbus. I think he directed Home Alone. Yes. But Chris it was Spielberg that says, um, I have, have this idea of like a lazy Saturday afternoon where it's kind of raining and these kids stay in a treasure map in the attic. And the ghost searching for treasure and the fan of pirates. And he wrote the screen. He was his idea, so he wrote the screenplay. And it's kind of like the same with E.T. So he had the idea for E.T., but he got somebody else to write the screenplay. Huh, that's genius. Yeah, and like you say, he had a, a nose for kind of like you know, what people wanted to see. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, there was, and I think he, was, he had a better kind of sense of that when he was younger. Like you said about you know, after Jaws, like Post Encounters, not so much 1941, that's not a big fan of that. But if you look at like Raiders, I don't know him and Lucas came up with the idea and he brainstormed with them. But even the likes of like E.T. and then producing like Back to the Future and Gremlins and the Goonies and then Poltergeist as well, which was his story. I have a Spielberg story as well, with Poltergeist as well. Yeah, that movie so, always feels so Spielberg in to me. Out of all the movies, Poltergeist literally feels like 1A, 1B. And it's weird. They came out the same month as E.T. Poltergeist. I'm of the opinion he directed I don't care what anybody I know. And they will. I, there's so many conflicting reports, and it's just too hard to know for a fact. But when you watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then when you watch Poltergeist, does that feel like the same director to you? It, it just doesn't. No. <laughs> I'm not even watching Salem's Lot. It still doesn't feel like Poltergeist. And I know that it's a TV movie, but I get what you're saying as well about Texas Chainsaw. Like, you say, like I'm saying about the fingerprints of, of Close Encounters being all over. Poltergeist, it, the, the shadows and the light that's used and the, the family, and that's not just a, uh, because he wrote it or helped write it or had the idea. That's placing the camera, that's cinematography, that's directing the actors, in my opinion. And just production design. Like, look at the set design in Close Encounters and look at the set design in Poltergeist. Like, the, the houses in E.T., the houses, they all feel yeah. very lived in. They feel like real places that you would go and visit. Like, in Poltergeist, it's, first of all, it's got Star Wars stuff 
all over the room. <laughs> but you know, it's just, it just it feels like real places, and it feels like it, it feels very much like the way the camera's moving. Like it would be moving in et or in close encounters it just does not feel like the toby hooper movie to me and i like toby hooper i like a lot of his movies but all of his movies poltergeist feels like the one that just sticks out it doesn't feel like a toby hooper film i mean maybe he did shoot this stuff but i don't feel like i feel like spielberg was standing right next to him in my opinion if that's the case spielberg come out and say it's something like he did directed and then he had to retract his statement give uh toby hooper the credit because he would have been sued, you know. And plus, it's not nice to do that anyway, you know, for to have Toby Hooper as his director. But like, there's been cast members come out and say, like, oh, Spielberg directed that movie. And then there's other cast members come out and say, no, Toby Hooper directed it. That's the so, problem. I, I don't know, but the proof is, is the same that Putin. Yeah. Like, if you were to sit down and watch Frozen Encounters and E.D. and then Portuguese and not tell the people who direct, or, and if you say, if you threw Texas Chainsaw in there, and said, right, out of all these movies, which is the odd one out, probably say Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, I just don't see it. I don't see it. I'm not, I, like, you know, Toby Hooper, he, he did The Fun House. He did Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Uh, I think Life Force. Like, he, he's a good director. It's just Poltergeist. I love Poltergeist. Like, honestly, if we were to pull Poltergeist out and you put that in Spielberg's filmography, Poltergeist would probably be my number one, even over E.T. I love Poltergeist that much. It's just it's a phenomenal film. Um, so yeah. it, I really believe that's because of Steven Spielberg. It's just, it captures a lot of that Spielberg magic in it. As far as I'm aware, Israel, they filmed E.T. and Portuguese around the same time, and they were weren't too far away from each other. As a matter of fact, at one stage, he was going to cast Drew Barrymore in Heather O'Rourke's part. That makes sense. And honestly, I'm not too sure. Maybe you can answer for this for me. But doesn't the uh, houses in E.T. and Poltergeist feel very similar, like they're in the same neighborhood? I, it feels like they filmed them in the same areas. Yeah, they're not too far away from each other. The three areas aren't too far away. I, 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 can't, I don't know. Obviously, I'm not from there. I don't live there. No. But I remember reading that like, the neighborhoods are very, very close beside each other. Yeah. Um, and there's actually photographs. If you go online, there's photographs of Spielberg sitting with the kids from E.T. in one side. And the kids from Poltergeist uh, in the other side. Oh, that's funny. I got to find that picture. That's awesome. Because I've always felt like the like you know the Halloween scene in ET when they're out walking the streets. I'm like, this looks like the same streets in Poltergeist. <laughs> yeah. So, but I'm yeah, I'm not from California either, so I don't know. But clearly, that's like somewhere in the California hills over there. So it's just always fascinated me that like that's Toby Hooper's movie, but I'm like, it just feels too Spielbergian to me. Yeah, no, it definitely does. It definitely has that that touch. <laughs> Some people can get very hotly contested about who directed directed what. It's just a, my point of view. It's just an opinion at the end of the day. If you were to ask me who directed that, I would say Steven Spielberg. Oh, no yeah. evidence, but I just he directed it. That's it. I'm, and, um, <laughs> I agree. And yeah. I I remember last year when I did my Poltergeist review, I put it out and I said that it didn't feel like a Toby Hooper mo- movie to me at all. And I had people commenting. I'm like, like saying, well, watch this in the Funhouse and you'll see where Toby Hooper's fingerprints are. And I did. And I'm like, I, I just don't see it. But I guess other people do. And I guess that's where all the confliction comes in. And the fact, like you said, you know, you have actors saying no Spielberg directed, no Toby Hooper directed. It's like. I guess we'll just never know for sure. And like you said, also, like Spielberg can't say he did because I guess like for legal obligations. So we'll never really get a definitive answer. Well, he actually wanted to direct both originally. He was going to direct both of them. He wasn't allowed. It was something to do with the Actors Guild or maybe one studio against another studio because they're two separate studios. E.T. was Universal. Yeah. And Poltergeist is, what is, uh, MGM? 
it's either MGM or Paramount. I don't know for sure. Yeah. So there's some reason why. And when you think about it as well, John, we've talked about this before. Spielberg directed uh, Jurassic Park and similar as this in the same year. Yeah. There's no reason why he couldn't have directed them for movies in the same year. So why was he casting both movies at the same time? Why was he scouting in the same locations at the same, you know, at this, around the same area? He, he had every intention of directing both of them and he wasn't allowed. So I think this was just to get around it, was to get somebody else in and then he would shadow direct. And as I've said, he can't admit it now because of legal reasons. And now Kobe Hoover's not with us anymore. It'd probably be a real crappy thing to do to come out and say, oh, it was me. Yeah, it would just be in bad taste. You know, like, don't, you know, don't shit on another guy's grave. He's gone now, so. Spielberg's got nothing to prove either. No. You know, he does not, he's not like he needs it all filmography, but I agree with you. Like, you were saying there about the, the messages that you got about people saying that, oh, what if you watch, what is it, Funhouse? You can see his fingerprints on Yeah, I mean, Steven Spielberg. Well, at the end of the day, if, if, as we have been saying here, you could watch 10 Spielberg movies, and more, his, more of his fingerprints is over Portergeist than Toby Rivers. Oh, a hundred percent, definitely. I they, it doesn't feel like a Toby Hooper movie to me, just in any way. It just feels all like Spielberg. Maybe, you know, maybe Toby Hooper was there. Maybe they contributed together, like they did some shots together, and that's what people see when they say they watch the Funhouse, then they watch Poltergeist. Is that they could see uh, certain shots that maybe Toby Hooper helped contribute to Poltergeist, but everything else in that movie just feels like a Spielbergian movie to me. Like just all the family aspects, definitely. Which you know circles back to Close Encounter and all of its family yep. aspects because I do not remember where we were talking about Close Encounters that we got over here. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a thing too about Close Encounters. Look, for me, this is second favorite or it's my second favorite movie of Spielberg. For me, it's a second death. And to me, it, it's really strange because it does have all those Spielbergian touches, but in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the only movie that feels different from the rest. Does that make sense? It kind of feels like it's out on its own. What do you think about that? What, that Close Encounters kind of feels like it's on its own? It, it does. It does in a way. It definitely feels very... <sighs> How to put this? Like it's similar to ET, but it's very, it's very much its own entity because it has a lot of different moving pieces that kind of don't feel like like this aspects when I watch this movie where I think especially like the desert shots. I'm like, okay, I could see that in Raiders where he pulled pieces from this movie, but this movie definitely feels like an original film to him, and I. Yeah. I absolutely just love what he was going for with this movie and the, all the shots he took. The third act, the entire like last like 25 minutes of this movie just feels so unique and like something that's never been captured again, in my opinion, in film. Not just in his filmography, yeah. but in any film. Yeah, and I think that's what I mean. I don't, I don't want to contradict myself because I think I've said, I've made a point about seeing the fingerprints of, of this movie on the next few movies. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that, like you say there, I don't think I've seen anything really um, like this before or or since or as good as this. It's just, like you say, just so original, just on how it looks and how it feels. And when people talk about Steven Spielberg, they're very rarely matching close encounters of the third kind, which I find really weird that they don't ever mention this. I mean, they'll go back and they'll mention Jaws and then they'll mention Raiders and they'll mention EP and they'll say similar to this with Jurassic Park and Stephen Taylor Rand, but they're very rarely matching close encounters. And I just think um, it's a very, very smart and mature movie as well. And I think that's probably part of the reason why. Uh, yeah, that's one thing I, I wanted to actually bring up is they really don't ever bring this movie up. And I don't understand why. 
Like, it's very popular. It was very popular. I mean, this movie made a ton of money when it first came out. It was successful. It had Academy Award nominations. I, I don't understand. Usually when they talk about Spielberg, they'll go from Jaws, yeah. and then they'll go right to Raiders and E.T. They'll skip right yeah. over this. Well, like This will be like a footnote. Like This will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, then he did. He had success with Close Encounters, and then he had a failure with 1941. And then he yeah. went on to do Raiders. So uh, it's weird. How it, get, it almost gets roped in with 1941 for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's like because it was overshadowed by, by Jaws and Star Wars then, obviously. You know, overshadowed by Jaws on a, on a director's point of view from, from Spielberg, even though it was a great success, you know, but it never hit the heights of Jaws. But then it was overshadowed in 1977 by Star Wars. How big of a success that was. Two sci-fi movies coming out in the same year. Yeah. And one just went through the roof, and the other one was, was a big success, but not to the heights of Star, Star Wars. But um, you're right, it just never gets imagined in the same breath as his other movies, and I don't understand that either. Yeah, no, I, I, I just will never understand. I get the the legacy. It must just be what you said, like with Star Wars, like the legacy. If this didn't come out in 1977, let's just say this came out maybe two years later in 1979 before Empire came out, maybe it would be more fondly remembered. But maybe that year, the fact that it came out with Star Wars, it just got so quickly forgotten that it's just a footnote in the 70s. I wonder if it had to come out like, before Star Wars. Maybe. Would it have had more of an impact? The funny thing is you're, you're saying there about um, people remembering movies and things like that. It's like the first time I seen Close Encounters, I was very young at the time. I don't know what age it was, six or seven, whatever. And I was off screen sick. And I watched it with my mum. And uh, that was the first time I watched it. And then she brought me into her work. And she told me a story many years later that I was actually describing to our work friends about Close Encounters. <laughs> and I was telling them about the bit where the young boy gets taken away by the aliens. And they were, I was telling, I was really engrossed. I was really telling them this story. I was really into it. And they were really into it because I was telling them. And then uh, I said about the mum screamed, but I screamed. Really? And apparently the old young started believing them. That's but funny. It's really funny. Like, yeah, like when I think of, I was thinking about this the other night when I was watching the movie again. Because most of when did you first see it and how did you feel about it? And um, I vaguely remember that being in our work and telling that st- our work friends that story. And it's really funny because like if I really deeply think about Jaws, I associate as I put in one of my podcasts with my father, right? And this movie here is kind of like the movie between me and my mum. And she probably doesn't know that. But the funny thing is my mum's the type of person that she doesn't understand why anybody would watch a movie twice. She's kind of like well, you've seen it, but why do you need to watch the game? She doesn't understand why I get sick watch the same movie over and over again. And I tell her, well, we're a different generation, right? Yeah. Well, she... there's one movie that she's seen a few times, and it's Close Encounters. And anytime we talk about Steven Spielberg, she always brings up Close Encounters and says, I absolutely love that movie. That's awesome. See, yeah, that's great because I I don't have this. Con- I have no connection to anybody else with this movie. If anything, I have more of a connection to you with this because you're the only other person I've ever talked to who actually appreciates this movie as much as me. Like my mom, she showed me ET. She loves ET. That's her favorite Spielberg movie, and it's not even close. Uh, nobody I ever hear bring this up. That's why I was fascinating that you like this movie as much as I did. But it's nice that you get to have yeah. that with your mom because I I saw this movie young. I rented this from Blockbuster and I didn't really come back to it until um I bought it on DVD, which I think that's the DVD you actually might still have. Yes, I have actually um several of the first 
version of the DVD. Oh, okay. That's the. I think that might be the one I have because I remember the pink, but it was a U.S. Yeah, release. Yeah, I actually bought that version from my mom. She had it on VHS. I remember watching the special edition on VHS. Um, my brother bought it for her. He worked in the video store and he bought it for her. And then um, it was lent out to someone and we didn't get it back. She was raging, so I bought her this version of the DVD, but that's my own version. But then a few years later, I seen this edition. Oh, that's beautiful. And I just had to have it. So you see, it, it opens up. Yeah, that's really nice. And then it's, this is like a steel thing that comes out. That is cool. This is the real collection. And then I've never actually watched this, but it's a DVD. I, I bought, I say, I've seen it. I thought it was a really nice edition. Oh, and the discs are just on the inside. So it's the same discs. Oh, they're nice discs, though. Yeah. I like the and art. And then obviously, the, then I got the, the, I guess, the 30th anniversary edition. But that's different than the ones I send you photographs of the actual box set. But that's over there somewhere. So, so I, I bought these. That's why I'm saying, I'm saying I've seen like four K editions come out, like box sets, and then I didn't buy them. That's how much I love this film. Is like I have to have all these different editions. Um, but I need to look into getting a four K edition. I just yeah, it's just a beautiful movie. And the last few years, I've been really getting into the original Alien movie. Love that movie. Sci-fi and alien movies. I really love the original Alien, and that's been creeping into the top ten movies of all time. And, I, and for, for a while, I thought to myself, it could be my favorite alien movie. But after watching this again the other night, no, this is still my favorite alien movie. I don't know what movie I like more, this or Alien. I love the original Alien movie so, so, so much. I just rewatched that a couple months ago also. Uh, and that, I like, that's my favorite Alien movie in the franchise, too. I mean, people love Aliens, but I think the original Alien is a classic. But I don't know. They, they are all very close. Alien, this... I don't know, E.T. I mean, E.T. would have to be number one just because I like that one a little bit more than this. Yeah, no, I love E.T. Um, uh, wouldn't be above Close Encounters, as you know. Be it number three? I don't know. Maybe at number three? I- I'm not sure. But in regards to Alien, yeah, I think that when you're younger, I think, and, you, and you're more and want to see more action, Aliens is probably your favorite. But I think as you get older, you appreciate Alien more, you appreciate more the kind of the slow burn, the suspense. The drama between the characters, I think, is a lot better than Aliens as well. Yeah, I mean, Alien is also uh, what you I like about it. And they dive into it in Aliens, but on this one, especially in the original Alien, what I like is that they're all doing a job. And I like that they're, like, I like the scenes where they're talking about the actual job and their shares and everything that they're going to get. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, like, stuff you don't, you don't appreciate that as a kid. No, and I think as an adult, you, you can relate to that, that more. Yeah. <laughs> Like, say there were four astronauts or five astronauts, like, not everybody can be an astronaut, right? If they're, like, as I say, truckers in space, you know, they're just guys out there, blue-collar guys, doing a job, wanting to get home, and, and they're, they're uh, complaining about their bonus, so I'm going to get the bonus. You know, I think nearly every person in the world can relate to that. It's kind of like, yeah, you know, I've been in that situation, you know what I mean? Exactly. We've all had jobs and like, you know, like this guy's getting more than me. Like without me, he wouldn't be able to even do his job. So that's pretty screwed up. He gets a full share and I don't. So I always appreciate that. (laughs) And I think that that's something I related to much more when I got older. And I'm like, and they're telling it in this sci-fi movie about an alien and it eventually just evolves into a sci-fi horror film with just a guy, uh, an alien hunting them down 
down one by one, like Michael Myers in space almost. Well, it's Jaws in space, really. Isn't it? Really, yeah, it's just Jaws in space. <laughs> it pretty pretty much. It, it pretty much, yeah. I think that's how they actually sold it. That's yeah. how they really sold it. Jaws in space. So you have Jaws, and then you've got Star Wars, and then they went, oh, well, that's maybe Alien. Oh, yeah. Jaws in space. But it's like, yes, you can relate to those characters then. So you can put yourself in their shoes. And then, because not everybody can go into space, and not everybody's going to see an alien, and you know, if you even believe they exist, but you can relate to ordinary working class everyday people, and you put yourself in their position, maybe dealing with like all the everyday rubbish that you maybe have to deal with, deal with in your or whatever. And then, as you say, on top of that, then you got to deal with this problem where it, you know it becomes a late death thing. You know, everything else becomes secondary then. Yeah, exactly. It becomes this whole big thing with the, uh, you know, with the alien hunting you down at the very end. But, like, you were just there to do a job, and that was it. And, honestly, if they would have just followed protocol from the very beginning, like Ridley wanted yeah. to, none of that would have even happened. But, of course, you know, that's what companies do, and we still deal with that to this day, is uh, we can make money off of that. So, he's coming on board. <laughs> yeah. And so. then, that, then that goes over in the aliens as well. Yeah, which they bring that back in the aliens again about the the, the company wanting the alien and yeah, that's trying why trying to hate hate things and cover things up. Yeah, that's why they try and make uh, what's his name, Paul Reiser in that movie comes off so friendly, and then you don't realize until the end of it. Nah, he's a piece of shit. <laughs> that's actually yeah, why exactly. I'm so hesitant every time I see Paul Reiser in a movie, like he's in Stranger Things, and they probably did that on purpose actually because it's '80s movie. Yeah, yeah but uh. Like, I keep th- waiting for him to turn and be a bad guy because of how he screwed me over in Aliens. <laughs> yeah. Here, I, I think, I meant to mention this last week in our Batman podcast, I think he would have made a brilliant Alexander Knox. He was, they're very similar actors, those two, and he definitely would have been, I mean, very, they, I actually think he would have been better than the guy who played Knox. Yeah, probably. That's yeah. smarty. Yeah, that guy is. I only seen that guy in a couple things, but he's very recognizable. That and uh, Bull Durham. <laughs> I actually started watching Tales from the Crypt a few months ago, and he was in a, an episode of that. Really? And you just think it knocks right right away? <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. He was in the episode. Like, he was in the episode with another very famous actor. Well, I can't even remember. Not, I got to remember. It's been a while since I watched any episodes of Tales from the Crypt. One thing we have to talk about on this podcast before we get out of here for sure is the fact that there's three editions of this film. There is the 1977 yes. original, the 1980 special edition, and then there's the director's cut that came out in 1998, which was, I guess, done in 1997 for its 20th anniversary. And I think me and you both can agree we do not like seeing the mothership at the inside of it. Yeah. Do you know what? I've been watching this movie on DVD. I actually got the VHS. I've still got the VHS. It's in the attic. I can't remember if that was the director's cut or the special edition. It's many, so long since I've watched the VHS, maybe over 20 years. But I've been watching this movie now on DVD for the last 20 years or so. And I can't remember the end when he's in, inside the spaceship because I never pick it to watch. I think I've been watching the theatrical version more than anything. However, I actually just found out after watching the making of that scenes like Richard Davis in the shower isn't in the theatrical version. There's a few scenes that aren't in the theatrical version. Um, it's the ship in the desert. It's remember when Dreyfus is driving and the shadow comes over the, the van before he has his, just after he has his first encounter with the aliens. Yeah. That's not in the theatrical version. And Dreyfus in the Shar isn't in the theatrical version. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I mean, I 
So the special edition director's cut came out in 1998. I've only seen the special edition once with the ship, but every version mm-hmm. I've seen, so I guess I've never seen the theatrical cut because I've always seen it with the shower scene and I've always seen it yeah. with the shadow being cast over it and the ship in the desert. So I've definitely never seen the theatrical cut then because this yeah. version has always pretty much existed since I've seen the movie is the director's cut and the special edition because the theatrical cut was only three years and then for some reason they wanted to make changes to it. What actually happened was Columbia Pictures that, that actually um, released the movie, so they were in financial difficulties and they were pushing for the movie to be released. Um, I think it was like in the winter, November, December time of 1977. And Spielberg hadn't really finished the movie. Um, there were scenes that he wanted to do or wanted to complete. Even some of the special effects and all weren't, wasn't completed to the standard that he wanted them to be completed to. Um, but they were pushing them to release the movie because they needed a big hit. So basically, Close Encounters of Thirteen saved Columbia Pictures. Spielberg went on with them um, for a few years after that. Look, I want to finish the movie the way I originally envisioned it, the way I originally intended. Uh, they said to him that we'll give you the money. I think it was one and a half million dollars around the late seventies, early eighties. Says um, you can film your extra scenes. Says, but we want to see inside the mothership. That's the, that's the only way we'll give you the money. So it's so a compromise. Look at me, agreed, and that's why he ended up with. The special edition and around 1980. He, he says himself that was a mistake. You shouldn't have seen him say the mothership. He didn't make that, and the audience didn't make it. No. Um, it took away from the mistake of being inside the spaceship. So he was able then to go back, as you say, in the 20th anniversary and keep the scenes that he refilmed back in the late 80s or late 70s, uh, but take out that end part. And that apparently is the, the ultimate edition. And it's funny you should say there, John, about um, special editions and directors' cuts and things like that. I've seen an interview with Spielberg and James Cameron, and the fact that James Cameron makes extended cuts and brings out like directors' cuts, and he actually attributed Spielberg uh, for planting that kind of seed that you can go back and do that to your movies. Huh, that's awesome, yeah, because I, I always prefer to watch the director's cut of T2, so I didn't know that that actually came from Spielberg. That's funny. That yeah. does make sense because the director's cut is definitely a combination of both the theatrical and the um, the special edition. So it's definitely the definitive edition you should watch. And I recommend that one for sure. But I mean, I might have to just watch the theatrical cut just to see like what see it with the missing scenes, because that's fascinating. Yeah, just out of curiosity. Yeah, because I know I've seen the special edition because I, I agree. I just do not like the them going on the mothership. You just didn't need to see yeah. it. It's completely unnecessary. I don't know who yeah, was asking I for it. Even... I think it's like one executive at Columbia being like, I just, I really wish I could see the inside of the mothership. And he's like, well, you know what? He asked us to, uh, you know, he wants to actually finish the movie the way he intended it. He's like, well, make yeah. sure he puts in the mothership on the inside. I've been dying to see that for three years. He's like, I'm not going to allow him. Don't give him the money unless he agrees to do the mothership. <laughs> <laughs> Unless he agrees to show me what to say that shit. Yeah. He doesn't show me what to say that shit. He's not getting the one and a half million dollars. <laughs> It's the, the only thing that makes sense. I've never heard anyone say that they prefer that version in my entire life. Anything I've ever read about this movie, no one's ever said that they prefer the special edition. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, <sighs> I, I would go back and watch it. I think the reason I would watch the theatrical version is because I'm a purist sometimes like that. I'm kind of like, I want to see the version of people seen in the cinema. 
you know, I, that's the way I think about it sometimes. But I agree with you. We, we talked about this before where we were going to do this podcast. And you were like, well, what version should we watch? And I and I looked it up and I went, I think we should watch the director's cut. And then since then, I've seen that interview with Spielberg. And he says, there's going to be no other cuts. That's a definitive cut. That's it. He's finished with it. And, and you're right. But know what I love as well, but it's not like Star Wars where we've lost the original versions. Like, you can sit and you can save whatever one you want to watch. Yeah. And maybe if you want to watch, like, if you're, if you're a paper person that watches Close Encounters every year, you, you know, you can maybe watch the theatrical version this year and then the director's cut next year. Yeah, that's So awesome. it's good that it's, we'll have them available to watch. Yeah, I'm, I like it if they give you the choices. It always bothers me with Star Wars, you have no choice. But, like, movies like Blade Runner, like, if you want to watch Blade Runner, there's, like, four cuts of Blade Runner. If you want to go back and watch the original theatrical cut, which most people agree isn't the definitive cut at all, but you do have it available to you. Same thing with Apocalypse Now, if you want to watch whatever yes. cut of that movie, because there's three cuts of that now. You have your options, whatever one you prefer, and I would, I'm would. i always there if you want to give, give us the choices. You can pick whatever you want you want. It bothers the hell out of me that the Terminator 2 4Ks, which are awful, only have the theatrical cut because I've always been a fan of the extended cut of that one. I don't have T2 in 4K, but I do have the Studio Canal Blu-ray, which done the 4K. Yeah, that's the same all the scan. Are, all the additions are on that, the version I have. Yeah. As a matter of fact, they, they actually have a version on their John which has the alternative ending, and you can watch it with the alternative ending. That ending is pretty definitive. The only thing I can never move past with that ending is Linda Handleton's makeup. <laughs> yeah, but it also also gets me when she says, Michael Jackson turned 50. Nothing much happened. Michael Jackson turned 40. Oh, uh, yeah. Did he ever... Did he make 50? <laughs> I think he got there at 53. Okay. Yeah, all right. Well, because I was going to say what age... Or maybe she said 40. Okay. I can't remember. It's supposed to be 1987, isn't it? Yeah, because uh, August 29th, 1997 was the original Judgment Day before we, uh, you know, we delayed it until 2003. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. But we'll maybe pre- she says Michael Jackson turned 40, because I think he died around, probably 52 or something, and that was around the late... Yeah, I guess it would make... Oh, you know what? If it's 1997, he would turn 40. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. He was born in 1957. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we put it together. We put our Brian yeah, brains we together. Brian. We, we got there. That's Michael Jackson's I just remember when he died. It, it was uh, I was in uh, I was working at where I was working at and everything. So I was like, that was 2010, 50. All right, we got there. <laughs> yeah, we got there. Yeah. So. But that's surprising that your 4K doesn't have different versions on it. Your Terminator 2 4K. I mean, I, I have two of them. <laughs> Here, I'll show you. So this is actually my Close Encounters 4K. It's got, just because since we're doing that, uh, yes. so it's got the 4Ks, and it's got a Blu-ray, and then it's got a Blu-ray special features disc. So for everybody who doesn't get special features, you get a whole third disc of him here. Yeah, it's the same as the, the Blu-ray that I have. No, it's not the same Blu-ray. That's the 40th anniversary edition you have there, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But I have the, the special features is on one disc, but I think there's more special features on that one um, during the 40th anniversary. Yeah, they re-released, I think they made a new little documentary for the 40th anniversary or something that's on here. Because I, they were showing it in theaters uh, and they were playing yeah. it before the movie. So, But you have, uh, what does your T2s look like? Yeah, so, sorry, my T2. So I bought this one here. Oh, I know, years like, ago. This like, is the ultimate high definition from their experience. This is um the Skynet edition. 
Skynet edition. I have that in a Blu-ray pack. Yeah, but this was the one that Studio Canal done. It's a 4K version, but this is just a Blu-ray. Oh, okay. But this, yeah, but this basically has this has the the theatrical version, the special edition, and then there's a version you can pick with the original ending, which is why I'm surprised your 4K doesn't have that. Yeah, this is the 4K, which is basically that version. If you look at similar yeah. box art, and it's done by Studio Canal. Studio, Can- you can yeah. see it in the back right there. Yeah, <laughs> somewhere. It's the same. So I don't know why people that. Yeah, it's a two disc set too. I wonder. You know what? I was it you who told me to check out the Blu-ray because you like the Blu-ray cut of it. I think it, I I can't remember if it was you or somebody else said that the the Blu-ray that comes packed in with the 4K is the best version of the movie, and I'm wondering if that's why because the Blu-ray version you have would be the Blu-ray version that's in here, and I've never watched it. I would imagine that they do a 4K scan, converted the Blu-ray, so it's the same scan, it's just that 4K. Yeah, and the 4K is usually if they ever have multiple cuts of the movie. The 4K will only be the theatrical cut, and then you have to watch the Blu-ray right. to get the other cuts. And I haven't put okay. that Blu-ray in because this 4K is atrocious. So, okay. <laughs> I, but maybe well, I'll just check out the Blu-ray. Check, check it out because I had imagine it'd be the same Blu-ray as this one. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. It looks. I mean, like I said, the covers look. They're same identical. Covers? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> identical. But, here, but I also have what is it down here? There's that one, Marjo. Oh, that's beautiful. At, it, that looks exactly like what I had. Very similar. I had the. It was called the Ultimate Cut or the Extreme DVD, but it came in a metal yeah, case. Like, yeah, it came. It had. It looked very similar to that. I don't have it anymore. Please. Matt does though. Did you give that to Matt? No, Matt and me. It's just I lost all of my. When I moved out of my mom's house, she had all my DVDs, and I don't know if she still has them or not, or if she has right. them in storage or something, but. She had all my DVDs. I literally left with like a garbage bag full of clothes and all this. So like I, she has all that stuff, or she gave it to my. Well, I don't remember, but I had a ton of wrestling DVDs too. <laughs> yeah, wrestling ones. Well, that, that's the way the cover is. But what I actually like about it is that there was a there was a booklet with it. I don't know if you got the booklet as well. So it's kind of. Oh, that's beautiful. It's like an addition. You're like I'm like I've never watched it in years, but it's like. I'm gonna keep it because like. <laughs> yeah, no, I wish I could go back and like that's one thing I don't get rid of. Like now, I don't get rid of stuff that's a special edition just because. But like back in the day, you know, I just I, my mom has that stuff somewhere before I was 18. Then when I left, then I started my own stuff. You know, is there anything else you want to say about Close Encounters? Because there's always something because we talk about it so much. There's something's in your head and then it goes back out again, and you're like, I should talk about that. No, I know. But, um, that, that's why I wanted to make sure I brought up the special because I was like, we got to make sure we don't forget that because that's important. <laughs> and when I was watching the making of earlier, we talked about the special occasion and I was like, oh, thank God, because I didn't couldn't remember the differences. Yeah. Um, I wasn't 100% sure. Like, I showed you that poster and I, I was going to read it and I think around it and so busy I speak because I had poster tells you the differences. Yeah, it gives you like what the, scenes are in each one. And stuff. That's and awesome. And differences in the music as well. That's crazy, is there really? <laughs> yeah, at the end when they play uh When You Wish Upon a Star or something as well. Oh, you're right. I did read that. They did play I Wish I, you're right, I read that. Okay. Yeah, there was there was a different difference in the music at the end, but um I have to start writing some of their stuff down because I remember the time I'm like I think it was out of my head when we talked. I was, but, I was a bit of dialogue towards the end of the movie as well, which I wanted to talk about. I can't remember what it is now. Isn't it funny how that happens? Like you're watching the movie and you're like, I don't need to take that note. I won't forget. And then the next day you go and fuck, I forgot that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There was dialogue and I told myself, I must bring that up. 
something towards the end. Yeah, I do that all the time. And I always think I'll, I'll remember like a joke that I want to put in a review, and then the next day I go to do the joke, I'm like, I can't remember it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, listen, see, to be honest, I don't think there's anything to the kind of like I said to you before, and the Massey's the other night. It's like it's one of those movies that it's so impactful that I don't want to know how we've done it. No, I get that completely. You don't want to know how, and you know, it's not like in Jaws or like in Batman where like they, they there was a lot of like behind the scenes stuff. It seems like everything went pretty smooth in the making of. The only thing I read that was kind of unique was, which kind of I guess circles back to what you were saying about Columbia, is that they had to shoot some stuff in 1976 to like get a write down for taxes, and there really wasn't yeah. much, and I'm not too sure what it was even in the movie. But then they shot yeah. really most of it in 1977. But that was the only thing that really stuck out. Otherwise, it sounds like everything went smooth. You know, nothing broke. Nothing like in, like went wrong with Jaws. Everything seemed to go pretty well. They got it in under the budget. Like, it had a good $20 million budget. So they were able to film it the way they wanted to. It's just like what you said. Like, Columbia wanted it out for yeah. 1977. It did. So it came out in the winter, very tail end of the year. So it was important to them to get it out, I guess, because they had to have the income for their taxes for 1978. I'm not 100% sure how that works. I'm not a businessman. <laughs> yeah. And Spielberg said himself that after he made Jaws, he says that um, this was so easy to make. But he says himself that if he hadn't made Jaws and made Cruise Encounters, the Cruise Encounters would have been the hardest movie he'd ever made. So it just shows you that, as you said, it was plain sailing, but it was very difficult to kind of maybe put together from a point of view of special effects. There's a lot of those effects hadn't been done before, but he, he employed the best. He got the best in there to do the special effects and to do the um, production design and and uh, stuff like that and do all the drawings draw and storyboards and things like that. But, I mean, um, when I watched the making of I mean, it shows you at the end they were basically just experimenting. Um, they were doing an awful lot of experimenting for months on end about how the aliens would look, how they would come out of the spaceship, you know, how they would interact with the humans. To the point where they're even thinking about even like getting mimes in to play the, the humans and to move slow and the speed of the, uh, uh, getting the people who are the aliens to move really fast. So when the play, when the speed to fill them up, so the mimes would like they were moving normal, the aliens were moving super fast. But all of that, it just didn't work. There was like a clip of like Richard Javis when he went down to the mothership, like being sucked up. He's no gravity, but they <laughs> even cut that out because they just said it just didn't look right. So they did spend an awful lot of time and money, kind of um, try, just trial and error to try and make it look spectacular, try and make it look alien, you know, not human. And that, that's what I mean about this movie as much as like I love this movie. I love how it makes me feel. I love the emotions of it. I love the human drama. But I do think some of the alien effects again are a bit weird. Uh, like the big one that comes down with the big skinny lanky arms and legs. To me, that just looks like a puppet. It looks horrible. Um, I don't know what you think about that, John. It's funny because I was going to say, I thought that this movie for the most part looks gorgeous. Like great miniatures, great matte paintings, spectacular looking. But the aliens, it's like, and I, I read a lot of that stuff too. Like they tried so much stuff for months to try and get the aliens to look like they wanted to. And it just wasn't working. So I'm guessing this was just them like throwing their arms up like, okay, well, we'll just do this then. It's clearly just somebody in this. I think actually it's, uh, young girls in suits is what they ended up doing at the very end because they just liked the movement. Yes. But, like, when I think of, like, alien effects, I think of this, and I think this is what they a lot of people base, like, drawings of what they thought aliens would look like 
after this movie because it just looks so fake. And the, the, the aliens themselves, I just that's the one effect I bump into too. It just I don't like it. But I mean, it's such a minor part. It's like all right, I understand. So I had the yeah, same exact. Yeah, I think play. that's what I'm saying. The, the whole story, the whole drama, the whole human story as well, because it's so good and because the, like this film came out was we've said seventy nineteen seventy seven almost fifty years ago. So. Yeah. Um, I think, for the most part, I think the effects hold up amazingly for a film that came out in 1977. I agree. They definitely hold up well. All right, yeah. I definitely think most of this movie holds up well. I think it's fantastic as well. I think it's one of the... Obviously, we both think it's the second best Spielberg movie of all time. And it's one I'll be revisiting for the rest of my life, for sure. I know you will, right, David? Definitely, 100%. Um, I'm actually regretting that band of 4K. When it came out, so I'm definitely going to have to invest in that because uh, I love this movie. And it is one that I, it's not one I would watch every year. It's not the type of movie I can watch again and again, like within a year or whatever, like Mega Jaws or something like that. But it's definitely one that I like to revisit every few years. And I love it every single time I watch it. That's so funny. I don't go back to this one every year, too. This is like every two to three year for me. So, But every time I do go back to it, I love it. I just think it's like the family drama stuff, definitely. Uh, it's definitely tougher yeah. to watch those kinds of stuff. It's not like very lighthearted like E.T. or even like Jaws, like in the sense that it's a very easy rewatch. But I do still love it, and I cherish this movie. But... Anyway, guys, that's going to do it here for us on the Let's Talk podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode, and we will be back with another great film in a few weeks, and we will be seeing you around. So make sure you hit that like button, subscribe button, and just tell all your friends about us. 